New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern delivered the biggest election victory for centre-left Labour Party in half a century on Saturday as voters rewarded her for decisive leadership. Angela Merkel made history when she became Germany's first female Chancellor. Consequently, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, having received more than 50% of the valid votes cast on November 8th, is hereby declared the winner of the presidential election. For a lot of history, women in politics wasn't a thing. Women lived in a man's world where men, by virtue of their maleness, were thought to be stronger, better, and smarter. Women were prohibited from parliaments and excluded from decision-making. Thankfully, those attitudes seem to be shifting. According to the Gender Inequality Index, on average, globally, women are represented in about 25% of seats in parliaments. That number has grown from 13% in 2000, so considerable progress has been made in just 20 years. I'm interested in exploring parliamentary participation because it's part of the Gender Inequality Index, which we spoke about on Episode 2. It falls under the empowerment dimension that looks at the number of men and women who are in parliaments and who have completed secondary education. In theory, empowering women in society sounds good, as it means a greater number of choices for women. But does it have an empirical benefit in improving women's health? Let's find out. On today's episode, we speak to an academic and some former staff on a democracy project in Pakistan to explore whether or not gender equality in the political space makes our societies healthier. From DAI's global development team, I'm Megan Howe, and you're listening to Unburdened, where we give our cut on global health issues that aren't related to healthcare. In this series, we're asking whether gender equality makes us healthier. And today, we explore whether female political participation contributes to our health. First up, we speak to a professor who spent 10 years studying the relationship between maternal mortality and political participation. My name is Damien Clark. I'm an associate professor of economics at the University of Chile. The, the, the early parts of my career has focused much on maternal mortality and in general um, on, on health and fertility. A lot of my work has sort of started with the idea of, of looking at fertility because fertility is such an important moment in, in, in our lives. It's sort of a moment um, when, when your life changes completely, um, say having, having a baby, changing, changing your family. And it's relevant to everybody. I mean, even if, if you're not a, a pregnant woman, if, you, if you're um, a baby, everybody's born. So it's really one of these questions which is, is quite transversal and to start out with, what what kind of interested you in these in this subject in particular? Kind of looking at um, politics and maternal mortality to, to compare these these two themes. We were sort of interested in, in in understanding, or we think it's very important to understand why is it that in in places with arguably reasonably reasonably high um, resources for health, you still see very um, very high rates of maternal mortality. Which is strange when one thinks that the determinants of maternal mortality and the determinants of infant mortality are things that we know. It's not like there's some some fundamental missing link. Having a safe pregnancy isn't like developing a new COVID-19 vaccination. We know what to do. Go to the doctor, give birth in a hospital or with a skilled attendant, and attend anti- and postnatal care. So why are so many women still dying from childbirth, even in high-income countries? If not resources, is it something that's holding back 
the use of knowledge. The knowledge is there, but people aren't using the knowledge. And this is actually something that's been discussed in the medical literature for um, since quite a long time ago. This is the idea of it's, it's known as the Yentl syndrome that um, in certain diseases, the fact that women present differently means that they get very substandard healthcare because doctors and, and the medical industry in, in general is used to dealing with men and seeing um, seeing problems through this this sort of lens. The Yentl syndrome was first coined by Dr. Bernadine Healy in 1991 in an article she wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine. In her piece, she recalls a story from a famous Jewish author of a woman named Yentl. Yentl had to dress up like a man to be allowed to study the Talmud. Healy said that something similar was happening with women having heart attacks. Doctors would apply their knowledge of male heart attacks in women, but misdiagnose or fail to treat them as female heart attack symptoms present differently. And so we had this idea, all right, perhaps it's just that the knowledge is there, but it's not used because societies just don't prioritize women-only health. And then this is when we thought, all right, how, what, what's a lever that, that might make leaders more interested in, in focusing on women-only health? And that's when they started to explore women's political participation. Damien and his colleagues thought that if there were more women leaders, they'd care more about issues that matter to them and issues their female constituents care about. But there were a few challenges to doing that sort of research. Mainly, how do you isolate the impact of political participation, given that thousands of variables affect population health? Understanding the impacts of, say, of women in politics in general is very difficult because they're things that change slowly and they're things that change in concert with many other variables. So you can't isolate the impact of women in parliament on, um, on say, women's health. To eliminate as much bias as possible, the researchers chose to study parliamentary gender quotas as their main variable. Looking at these quotas helped them isolate the effects of women's political participation because there was rapid political change once the quotas were introduced. The convenient thing in looking at gender quotas was that in in our samples, we work with a sample of around 180 countries, and there was 22 countries in this period of, say, 1990 to, to 2016, where they adopted um, reserve seat quotas, so there are reserve seats in, in Parliament for for women, um, and these were all done reasonably closely in time. Because it was imposed by this general agreement, it wasn't like these were the response to to broader factors. In 1995, at the Fourth World Conference on Women, 189 countries signed the Beijing Platform for Action. This declaration accelerated parliamentary quotas by encouraging countries to set a 30% target for participation of women in political decision-making. Using this declaration as a starting point helped the researchers reduce bias and isolate the variables in their study. You may think that these societies are societies which in general are becoming more progressive over time. We don't see that these countries are ones that are remarkably more progressive in the run-up to the gender quotas. As an example, they women's labor force participation, you don't see that this is changing massively in the run-up to gender quotas. The research team controlled for a lot of factors to isolate the impacts and effects of political participation. But we're not going to go into the ins and outs of the statistical modeling. If you want more detail, you can find the link to their paper in the show notes. Overall, their design was fairly straightforward. The underlying design is quite simple because basically what we see is we see the entire world and for every country we see whether it adopted a gender quota, so we have these 22 countries which did adopt a gender quota, and 160 countries, or 158 or so, which didn't. And for each of these countries, we observe 
um, the proportion of women in parliament, both pre and post quotas. And we also observe rates of maternal mortality pre and post quota. And in countries where there's no quota observed, we see, gen- we see women in parliament and we see maternal mortality. And then these are just sort of control countries, I guess. And then the idea of what we're doing with, with our, with our sort of our statistical modeling is we say, all right, let's take these countries which, um, which adopted quotas and those which didn't. And let's compare. So in, in the first case, let's compare rates of women in parliament both pre and post um, quotas. And what we should see is that both groups, those that adopt and those that don't, follow reasonably similar trends. In short, if a quota was put into place, the number of women in parliament should increase. You see a sharp increase, a sharp and, and very clear sort of at year one, the proportion of women in parliament increased by about eight, um, 8% after the adoption of gender quotas. In countries that did adopt a gender quota, meaning more women were participating in political decision-making, rates of maternal mortality fell. In year one or year two, you see it falls by about 3%, which is, which is still um, an important result. But in the long term, so say after two election cycles, let's say eight years out, we see that, things, that rates have fallen by about 8%, which is a, a substantial decline. I mean, it takes time, but it's a substantial decline. Around eight years out, the proportion of, um, of, of pregnancies covered by... Um, by prenatal visits has increased substantially. Similarly, we see people are much more likely to have their birth attended by a midwife um, or, or, or a doctor or, or a nurse or some medical professional with some, um, some experience in, in attending births. So really what we see is that the determinants of maternal mortality are being affected by women in parliament. I guess what our paper shows is that in a very cheap way, these gender quotas have really brought about a major decline in maternal mortality, and really we need innovation. So I think what our paper suggests is that these quotas are one way to do it. And I say it's very cheap because it hasn't, it hasn't meant that these countries are investing substantially more in health. Let's put that 8% decline into perspective. In 10 years, between 2010 and 2020, the rate of maternal mortality globally declined by 13%. According to Damien's research, quotas result in an 8% decline in maternal mortality over eight years. Basically, without any traditional health inputs like more doctors or bigger health budgets, we could substantially improve the decline of maternal mortality through parliamentary quotas. By 2030, to meet the sustainable health goals, maternal mortality would need to decrease by over 50%. That's a massive reduction. Increasing the number of women in parliaments could provide an innovative way to achieve that target. But let's back up a bit. This may all sound great, but I'm sure many people would balk at the idea of mandatory gender quotas in parliaments. Is it right to give seats away to women? Should that ever be mandated? And is it really worth it? Are women representatives taking away a position of of a man? Um, I mean, yes. It's that these are trying to redress historical imbalances and they're not considered to be permanent solutions. What we're seeing is that gender quotas increase the proportion of women in parliament by five percentage points. So it's taking it from some low level, let's say 5%, and moving it to 10%. It's not like we're talking about women becoming the majority of parliamentarians. We're talking about really a quota at a very low level, so moving from 5 to 10%. And if anything, I think one might be concerned that they're, they're still underrepresentation, that women parliamentarians are offering real benefits without any, any cost that we, can, that we can find. 
So while men would have to give up some seats, research shows that even guaranteeing women get a few seats in Parliament can improve maternal health. And it wouldn't be permanent, but a way to address historical imbalances. Perhaps some may find that idea easier to swallow. So much of health is not related to health, right? Like what we're finding is that in this particular case, health is much more about the way society sets its preferences. And if society sets its preferences in in certain ways, we can really make, make life much better. It really suggests that what we need isn't just business as usual. What we need is sort of innovation in, in policy, innovation in thinking. And I think what this paper suggests and what our, what our research in, gen, in, in general suggests is that um, it's much more complicated than just, um, just bringing basic health inputs. Really, we need to think about the social structures and the way society views women's health. Um, and I think this is just a, sort of a, a useful general, general point from, from our papers in, the, in this line of research. So it's not just about more doctors. Social structures have a huge impact on population health. If we look to change those, maybe we can build happier, healthier societies more effectively and with less money. That's what the CDIP project in Pakistan stumbled upon. The Consolidating Democracy in Pakistan, or CDIP for short, was aimed at increasing female voter turnout and improving female participation in parliament. CDIP, and its sister program, AWAS, ran for a total of eight years and focused on civic education, voter engagement, and drafting inclusive legislation. Pakistan ranks in the bottom quarter of all countries on the Gender Inequality Index, meaning it's a fairly unequal society. However, the country did adopt a 30% parliamentary gender quota in the early 2000s. The project aimed to strengthen this quota and increase female voter turnout by helping women get ID cards. Here are some of the program staff to explain. So my name is uh, Khurram Jalani and uh, um, I'm from Pakistan. I worked on Consolidating Democracy in Pakistan program. I'm Saira Zaidi and I've been working on development projects in Pakistan for the past several years on um, governance and countering violent extremism. When we started the program, we identified basically that there are around 11 million women who don't have their uh, national identity card numbers. So they are not registered as citizens despite uh, being born and living in Pakistan. Pakistan is is really interesting because, um, you know, in a lot of countries, you can vote um, if you have different forms of government ID. Um, it varies, right? But there's there's often more flexibility in Pakistan. There's there's a card called a national identity card, um, which is essentially the civil registry of Pakistan, and it's it's the only way um, for you to be included in the electoral rolls to be eligible to vote. Um, not only that, but it's 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 required for you to basically um, access any sort of service or benefit as a citizen. So if you want a SIM card, if you want a bank account, um, if you want to go to university, um, if you want to access uh, care in a public hospital, you need this card. CDIP recognized that 11 million women were not only excluded from voting, they were excluded from society in general. They weren't able to access social services, and most critically, they couldn't access public health services. So they can't go to a public health facility and get the treatment. They can't register a complaint in a police station. So it's exclusion from everything, from 
digital world from social from community from family and also it is uh, it means that their children will also suffer because when they don't have cnic and if some women have a children then they can't register their child as well because it require parents registration first to register a child and that means for example the the child will not have right to uh, healthcare which include all essential vaccinations um, skilled birth attendant birth um, in a proper hospital and also uh, obviously right to schooling and everything Women don't have access to these cards for a variety of reasons, but for the most part, it has to do with their position in society. So, why these women are not registered? Because their forefather, their parents are not registered in most of the cases. In some cases, because these are women, that's why they are not registered. Because uh, generally, people um, in remote areas, in some localities, feel that women they don't need to uh, have a national identity card because. they don't need to go out they don't need to get uh, the educations uh, the women don't need all these services they they live they stay most of the time at home they look after the children so they don't need anything so they they, they don't have all these rights so that's the challenge in other words the social structure of the society was preventing women from participating in elections but also accessing public health services here's saira again talking about some of the challenges to getting these cards they they cost time and money and the system is not very user friendly so it you know it often requires multiple trips to the office for the registration authority there are often reports of them you know shifting document requirements or asking for bribes um the staff are not really trained to be sort of um inclusive in the way they deal with people to accommodate women women in pakistan bear the sort of disproportionate level of taking care of their kids and doing things in the house and there's also sort of this issue of them going out into a public space the burden is totally on them to go and get these um cards and and for 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 a woman from a disadvantaged part of society that you know the cost just isn't isn't really worth it Cyrus says they reduce these barriers by going into communities with mobile registration vans and information campaigns to encourage women to register going out and working with local civil society to get women registered um so sending out you know mobile registration vans going into communities identifying the women who were not registered and sort of facilitating them from start to finish um so that they could vote but obviously then that has a longer term benefit for those women who have those id cards um for all those other aspects i talked about across both programs some 3 million women from the poorest of society were registered for an id card and as a result there was a large uptick in female voter participation in pakistan's general election in 2018 the program also pushed for better legislation for women and a strengthening of the existing parliamentary quota system helping make reserved seats available to all women here's kuram again as a result of that uh, increased capacity the government could do a couple of legislations one of that was uh, amendment to the election act so it was basically um, more women are able to participate in election as voter then they have um, more uh, percentage in the political parties so they are well represented and then also there is a uh seats reserve seats as well as more regular seats uh, in the parliament for women so cdip increased female voter turnout strengthened the quota system and improved civic education for millions 
but perhaps the most interesting results were the least intended. Looking at health data in Pakistan during the program period, between 2012 and 2018, maternal mortality declined by 19%. That's a significant figure. Not only that, but as Damien spoke about previously, the determinants of maternal mortality improved. For example, the births attended by a skilled birth attendant increased by 17%. So what we have seen uh, over the years um, uh, that the there is an increase in uh, birth by skilled birth attendants. So more and more women are basically uh, getting the services of a, you know, of a skilled birth attendant. So uh, earlier it was very low obviously uh, there were very few women but now with more and more cnic's they could without any money they could go and just get the health services without any charges obviously other factors contributed to the decline in maternal mortality and the program didn't conduct a scientific research study to isolate maternal mortality and political participation But given that over 3 million of Pakistan's most vulnerable women were provided with ID cards and therefore public health services during the same time frame, we can understand that the program contributed to those figures. I go back to something Damien said at the beginning of this episode, that essentially, we need innovation. We need to think outside the box to reduce maternal mortality and meet the sustainable development goals. Clearly, female political participation is one way to do that. Unburdened is a DAI production. Check out our show notes for the links to the research we used in this episode. If you liked the show, leave us a rating, or you can get in touch with me, Megan Howe, on Twitter. For more information, visit our website at dai.com slash unburdened podcast. See you next time. <laughs>